Both of our scripture readings this morning come from the New Testament. The first one is a reading from Peter's second epistle, the third chapter, verses 1 through 10. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, notice that word deliberately, overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by, by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In our second reading, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, is from Revelation 14. We take up where we left off last week with the sixth verse of chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God! And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast, 
and his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Before we pray and ask the Lord to teach us, I want to say a word to you if you're visiting with us or if you've been here most every Sunday. We're in what most people consider to be the most difficult book of the Bible. I preached from Revelation many, many times, but it was from very selected passages uh, over the years. It wasn't, it was after 50 years of ministry uh, in January of 2020. I was teaching a small group Bible study and had decided that I would teach a Bible study beginning at the first chapter uh, and going verse by verse to the end of the book. I had no idea what that study would do from, or would, would do to me. Uh, it changed me. It affected me more than anything I've done in 30 or 35 years. That's, I mean, it was, I didn't see that coming. So that a year and a half, two years later, when I completed that Bible study, uh, all I wanted to do was preach through it. Little did I know that the Lord would call me here and bring me together with Christ's covenant church. But I knew once that happened, where we would go right after Easter, we preached on the ascension, and then we went to the book of Revelation which is all about the ascended Jesus. It was a natural transition. I look back now. I told somebody this week, a fellow minister, I said, you know, I never thought I would say this, but I sinned. I mean, I sinned in not bringing the book of Revelation before the congregations that I served. Um, that's how crucial I think this book is. I don't think there's a, I think this book specifically today speaks to our world in the United States and our culture more than any other part of scripture. I really believe that. So this is important. Now, if you're coming in and you're hopping into the 14th chapter with us, this message will stand by itself. You'll be able to understand it. But what, I, what just shocked me, in the middle of that first, the, the, the Bible study that I did over two years, after the first year, I looked at Revelation and I said, this is not a book that is that hard to understand. And I know you're saying, yeah, right. But it's not. It is, you know, we look at Romans. Romans is a tightly organized argument polemic theology 
that Paul, and you would expect it, Paul a lawyer. And it just is it's all links together. It's a tight reason thing. Well, just so, scene after scene after scene, we said it's not a didactic book where someone is teaching us doctrine. No, it's a book of pictures. And all these pictures are linked together, full of symbols. And it's some strange symbols. But it's very reasonable and understood from one, from one scene to the next scene to the next scene. Why are we here? Why do we, you know, it, it just, it fits. It fits together. And I would encourage you to hang with this, to stay with it, and approach it that way. Now, as we begin in our introduction this morning, we're going to have just a brief review, just very, very brief. I don't like doing that sort of thing, you know. But to understand this passage, we must put it in context. I would say to you, if you're visiting, or remind you, if you are hit or miss in your attendance, or even if you want to go back and study it, on the church's website, ccrcmemphis.com, you can go there and all those sermons are listed. There's one left out, and I hope to get to it, not this week, but the next week, and redo it. But all those sermons are there, and you can go back, and if you're, this is your, your first time, you can go back and listen to last Sunday's. Uh, that was sort of a, a preamble to this sermon, but, or it's linked to this message. So I encourage you to go there and use that resource and, and review whether you are a member or whether you're brand new to this this morning. Now, having said that, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, as always, as we bow before you as your priests, this is that one time that we come together during the week, all of us. We have an opportunity to pray and bring our cares before you. This morning, once more, we bring John and Kaki Cruz. We thank you for how you've blessed John with this medicine. We pray that you'll continue to strengthen him. We pray for Kate Morrison. Oh, Father, bring healing. Bring, bring comfort to John and Kate. To John and Kaki. Oh, Father, bless them in this. You know their needs this hour, and we just lay them before you and pray that you would bring healing, comfort, peace, confidence, and anticipation. Father, we pray this morning for Nita Wittishen, that you would bless her. Father, speak to her as only you're able to speak to her. Bless Buddy, as he cares for her. Pray that he will be an encouragement to her. And Father, I pray that she would be an encouragement to him. We don't come complaining, Father. You've been good to us all of our days. You've been good to these folks, for which we pray all of their days. And we know that the grace that has brought us safe thus far, that grace will take us home. It will lead us home. We have the utmost confidence in this, Father. And so we pray. Now, as we open your word, John Sartell cannot preach so that it will make any difference in our lives. 
No one who stands behind this desk can teach that way. So, Father, once more we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts this morning. When we leave here, may we know that we have been with you, that we've heard your voice. Father, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Change us, maybe some of us for the first time, for the glory of Christ. Amen. A choice of wines that has eternal significance. It will help if we can set this passage, the passage we read this morning, in context. The book of Revelation is built around several series of seven. We we saw first the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. Then we saw Jesus opening the seven seals of the great scroll. Then we saw and heard seven angels blow seven trumpets announcing events. After the seventh trumpet was blown, we have been in the process. And I want you to listen to this because this is the first time I've said, maybe the second time I've said it. That after the trumpets, you have seven visions or seven scenes. And we've been in the process of looking at those seven scenes or seven visions. They cover all of chapter 12, all of chapter 13, and all of chapter 14. The subject of these visions or scenes has to do with the conflict. The conflict is all about the war between Satan and God, between Satan and the people of God. There's a war. And this is a description of it. The first scene, you remember, had to do with a glorious woman there in chapter 12, representing, she represented the people of God. She was pregnant. She was giving birth to the Messiah. The scene pictures Satan there, waiting for her to deliver the baby so that he can destroy the baby. That's the first scene. The second scene is in heaven, takes place in heaven, and it depicts a war between the angels and Satan. In this scene, Satan is thrown from heaven. Heaven rejoices, but wow, on earth, there's great woe. For here is now Satan with an obsessive hatred for God's people. In the third scene, we see we saw a great beast which resembles Satan. It's the incarnation of Satan trying to copy the incarnation of the Son of God. This great beast rises out of the sea to wreak havoc in an effort to eradicate. He's not just wanting to cause the people of God pain. He wants no evidence left on earth that the people of God ever existed. In the fourth scene, the great beast is joined by a second beast. He's a religious figure, forcing the earth, calling the earth to worship the great beast. He's focused on the beast, the worship of the beast, and leads the world in that direction. The fifth scene is heaven's response. We saw this last week. What a wonderful, comforting, powerful message. The fifth scene is heaven's response to the horrific work of Satan and the two beasts. We looked 
at this fifth vision last week, what was, what was heaven's answer to Satan's onslaught? We see Jesus. We saw Jesus standing on Mount Zion in glory with the people of God. They're in glory. He's standing supreme, ruling, celebrating in the midst of the people of God and not one of them, not one of us is missing in spite of Satan's great effort. So, at the end of chapter 13, think, think with me, now hang with me. At the end of chapter 13, there's Satan with the two beasts seemingly in triumph on the earth. The church is practically eradicated. And then the first five verses of chapter 14, you go from that, Satan winning the war on earth, you go from that to glory, and Jesus is standing in glory with the saints. So what happened? What happened? If, if you're reading a story, if you're reading this to your children, and the children go from Satan winning to Jesus in glory, they're going to say, hey, time out. Mom, Dad, what happened to the beasts? What happened to Satan? You've skipped something. What happened to the dragon and the two beasts? Is the earth to continue in the darkness of this evil? Well, the story has not been resolved, has it? The battle has not been resolved. That brings us to the sixth scene or vision. Now, that's the context. In this vision, I'm going to stop here for a minute. As Jesus breaks open the seals, and he gets down to the sixth seal. It comes right up to judgment. And there's just a mention of it. The kings of the earth will hide. And then you have the trumpets. And the trumpets come right up to the judgment. And stop and say a word or two. Well, this does more than that. You get to the end of these scenes. And it says a whole lot more about worship. Or excuse me, about judgment. I'm sorry. In this sixth scene, three angels fly over with three different messages. The first angel pro proclaims, the creator is coming to judge. Look at verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. And give him the glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. This angel flies overhead. And with him, we read, comes an eternal gospel. Now, it doesn't say the eternal gospel. It says an eternal gospel. The eternal gospel is the incarnation. The coming of the Son of God in the flesh is his dying for our sins. Is his resurrection and his ascension. That is the eternal gospel. But here it just says, this angel comes with an eternal gospel. 
Well, go back to the root word gospel. What does it mean? Most of you know this. The word gospel in Greek means simply good news. Whatever the news is, it has to be good news. That's what the word gospel means. That's the meaning that we must take here. The angel has an eternal gospel and eternal good news, and he shouts us to all the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. That's why his voice is loud. This is for everyone to hear. He's telling the world. And what was the first words of this angel's proclamation? Fear God and give him glory. It says do three things. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. Now, that's a wonderful summary. If you wanted to tell somebody, somebody asked you, what's the, what's the Bible about? You can say, I can tell you exactly what the Bible's about. Now, some would say the Bible's about Jesus. It is. But this, you can sum up scripture this way. It's simple. Fear God, give him the glory, and worship him. Well, why? He tells us the reason here. Why are we to fear him? Why are we to worship him? Why are we to give him the glory? Because he's about to do something wonderful. Well, he's about to do a wondrous thing. And you say, what's that wondrous thing? The angel says, he's coming to judge. He has come to settle all the evils, all the wrongs that have been perpetrated in his creation. Now, that may be a reason to fear him, but is that a reason to worship him, to love him? The judgment of God, as we read here, will usher in punishment and pain for some. People, learn this once and for all. As I listen to different ministers preach on this passage for the last two weeks, it's like they were trying to excuse the language that's used here. Well, you need to get past that. Learn once and for all that biblical justice, justice described in Scripture is a desired and good thing. We weren't in Memphis. We yearn for justice to be done in our city. We yearn for justice to be done in our nation. We yearn for justice to be done in our world. At the end of World War II, what did the Allies do? They came together and formed a court to prosecute the Nazi officials and high-ranking military officers along with German industrialists and lawyers and doctors that had participated in this awful evil. Someone had to answer. There was a worldwide crisis. Someone had to answer for the genocide, for the hatred the racial hatred that the Nazis brought into the world. Where did man get this sense of justice? We're just supposed to be animals. Where do we get the sense of justice? Man's made in the very first chapter of Genesis, we read man is made in the image of God. God gave man an innate sense of right and wrong. I had a wonderful Brittany Spaniel named Peaches. I lived in Southern Virginia. 
And Peaches had been reigned. He was the most spoiled dog. And he hadn't been disciplined at all. And he had run loose on the farm, not taught to point and retrieve. He, he loved to kill chickens. You know, any kind of bird he could get a hold of. After a year with me, a chicken could walk across our backyard and Peaches would lie there, her head on her paws, and she would watch that chicken. And Peaches did not, was not thinking, it is morally wrong, it's morally evil for me to kill that chicken. Peaches did not have that thought. Peaches had this thought. If I do that, my master is going to wear me out. That's exactly. But that's not who we are. We have a moral sense about us that sets up courts and yearns for judgment. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, Peter talks about justice, God's justice and judgment. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that all scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, notice deliberately, they deliberately, this is the world, overlooked the fact the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by the means of water, this world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, the world was judged. He said, what are they saying? He's saying these scoffers have forgotten about Noah. They even laughed at the idea of Noah. Noah didn't exist. That flood really didn't happen. Just ask the world today. But by the same word, he goes on in verse 7, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly. Said, remember there was an African-American spiritual. God gave Noah the sign, no more water. It'll be the fire next time. That's exactly, that comes from 1 Peter. That's exactly what God's saying. But don't overlook this one fact of verse eight. Beloved, that one day with the Lord, is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. What's he describing? He's describing the judgment of God. Now I want to ask you a question. In, dog, in today's culture, when, when do you ever hear a discussion between people 
about the judgment of God, about the eternal judgment of God. Think of the discussions that you've had with your friends or with the world around you, discussions about politics and sports and news and recent events and family and health and fears, discussions at work or at the country club or with friends at a party or in a classroom. When do you ever hear anyone talk about God's judgment? Unless they want to laugh about it. You know, sometimes a poll will be taken. I saw one recently. And the question was, what is your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? Fear of life altering. Here's some of the answers that were given. Fear of life altering illness. And indeed, we've witnessed our nation besieged by COVID. Paralyzed by fear of COVID. There's people that are paralyzed by their fear of Alzheimer's or fear of cancer. I had a friend of mine that was in his early 60s. He was wealthy, very successful in his business. And in 2007 and 8, he lost his house. I mean, lost his house, lost his cars, lost everything. That's a scary thing, isn't it? Fear of poverty, fear of being socially humiliated. But you know what? Every time I see the fear, do you know what, 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 what do you fear? And I see the list. You know what's not on the list? Fear of God's judgment. It's not on the list. It was on Jesus' list. It's on all the apostles' list. From Genesis to Revelation, it's there. It shouts at us. In our culture today, few are expecting Jesus to return. Our culture does not believe that all the world will be called into accounting before God. All through scripture, we're warned of the final judgment like of of Revelation 14. And, And what does Peter say in that third chapter? The delay is not an indication of God's apathy toward justice or evil. The delay is an indication of God's mercy, of God's patience. Misinterpreting his patience and scoffing at the idea of a holy and just God only adds to our condemnation. In 1 Peter, God is saying through Peter, I'm simply saying, not yet, not yet. There's time for mercy. There's time for grace. A friend of mine, I was listening to him preach on tape. And... He was talking about God's judgment. And he made this statement to his congregation. God has made promises and he has made threats. We would do well to remember that he will be faithful to his promise and he will be faithful to his threats. The first first angel shouted, the creator is coming to judge. 
period. Secondly, the second angel comes and says, the city of autonomous man has fallen. Another angel, look at verse 8. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this is not hard to understand if you know the background. Babylon is mentioned. Now listen up. Babylon is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. And this is the very first time. It's not been mentioned before this in the book of Revelation. But in the next four chapters, Babylon plays a significant role as a symbol. Babylon is mentioned here as being famous in the ancient world for what? Her sexual immorality. Could have been talking about the United States. What would we be known for? In the coming chapters, Babylon is closely identified with the satanic beast, with the Antichrist. To understand Babylon's meaning in scripture, we must go back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11:4, look at that scripture. Hang with me, this is important. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over all the face of the whole earth. Now, in chapter 11, what's being described there was accomplished by a man named Nimrod. He was a descendant of Noah. He was a great warrior. He was a builder of cities. He was the founder of Babel. He intended to build a great city whose power would reach to the heavens. Josephus, a historian that came much later, Jewish historian, said that Nimrod bragged that God would answer to him, would answer, that God would answer to Nimrod if he destroyed the world again, like he did with the flood. He would show God. He would build a tower to the very heavens. Well, do you know what Babel became? Babylon beca- or Babel became Babylon. You know about Babylon. There was another Nimrod-like character named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was like Nimrod. He was a warrior, a great leader, a really great leader, a builder of cities. And under his reign, Babylon became the center of world power and beauty. But he had a problem. He always gave himself the credit. He thought he was God. In Daniel chapter 4, look at this. The king is walking on across the top of his wonderful, across the the roof of his wonderful, wonderful residence. And he says this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now to read the rest of that story, go back to Daniel four. It's incredible. What was he saying? I built this city. Is this city not a monument to my power? Is this city not a monument to my ingenuity? It's not... Do we not think like this? Look what I've built. Look at the business I've built. Look at the house. Look at the family I've built. 
In the Jewish world and life view, Babylon became a symbol of a godless, godless city. A city that lived to be autonomous from God. That was Babylon. Well, Babylon did fall. It wasn't in time of revelation. Babylon fell, was destroyed 500 years before Christ. It, it fell in 539 B.C. So what did the angel mean? Babylon is fallen. In John's day, the apostles thought of Rome as a modern-day Babylon. In fact, that's what they called it. Look in 1 Peter 5.13 on your scripture sheet. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Where was Peter when he wrote that? He was in Rome. Where was Mark? He was with Peter in Rome. We know that. What's he called Rome? Babylon. Now, Rome had not fallen. It would be centuries before Rome fell. So what did the angel mean? We will see that Babylon was used in Revelation to describe the city of autonomous man. A godless city. It was a city of the Antichrist, a city associated with the beast. It was not just the city of Babylon. It wasn't just the city of Rome. It was the cities of Corinth and Athens and Ephesus. It was the city of London and New York and Beijing and Moscow and Las Vegas and San Francisco. Here the first angel comes and he says, the creator is coming to judge. Second angel comes and says, Babylon is fallen. The city of man is fallen. Judgment's coming. And then thirdly, and finally, there's another angel. And he says, and this angel says, all those who worship the beast will come under the judgment of God. Look at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Their worshipers, these worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. This is in response to the work of the beasts, to the work of the Antichrist. This returns us to the subject of chapter 13. This is not, do you see this? Is this a punishment of the beast? Is the beast being punished here? No. Neither beast, nor the dragon is being punished. Look at it. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, this is not a mark forced upon a resisting public. This is a voluntary allegiance to the beast, to the way of life of the Antichrist. Remember, we read in chapter 13 that the whole world worshiped the beast, followed after the beast, adored the beast, said, we've never seen anything like this. This is someone wanting to wear the mark of the beast, proudly showing their support.
they have partaken of the wine of Babylon. What's the wine of Babylon? The wine that celebrates any and all sexual immorality. Let me tell you, Babylon doesn't have anything on us. Our culture today, that's exactly what we are. In fact, it's not called sexual immorality. It's called sexual freedom, freedom to swing, freedom for sexual pleasure outside of marriage, freedom to express your sexual preference, whether it's with other men or women, freedom to decide your actual sexual gender. God does not rule here. You do. This is the wine of autonomous man. This is the wine of Babylon. This ought, we ought to walk out of here today white with fear because what's being described and it's voluntary. I thought about this and you're going to think this is silly but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you remember? Do you remember when Polo first came out and you couldn't wait to get that horse and rider on your shirt. That's all you know. I got a polo shirt. That's how we're going to be. I'm not saying, I'm not saying polo's the Antichrist. Don't go from here today. You know, and say that. I'm not saying that. But it's like that. It's, it's the desire. It's what we want. It's what we're after. Okay. So he says, you drink the wine of the beast. You're going to drink the wine of God's wrath. As people read about the fire and brimstone wrought by God's judgment, people are apt to say, I I know some of you all thought this this morning, you've got to get rid of this. You want to say, this is not the God I know. The God I know is a God of grace. And so he is. There's that great Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Hear this, the greatest Bible verse of all time, describing the love of God. God so loved the world that he came to save the perishing and keep them from perishing to the point that he gives his own son. Please don't come to me and say, well, this is really cruel of God. Wow. People, there's a cost to sin. Again, it's all through scripture. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Life? The wages of sin is fun and joy? No, the wages of sin is death. If you choose this autonomous life, free of God, free of his restraints, people, there's a cost for that. There will be a reckoning and God is holy and God is just, and you'll be before a God that gave his own son, will be before a God who gave his own son to keep us from that judgment. You know, there's a cost to redemption. God could not just say casually, hey, your sins are forgiven, John. Hey, Fred, your sins are forgiven. Alice, Carol, your sins, just go on. He kind of winks at it. No, he's just. Cosmic treason, cosmic autonomy, 
mocking the God, the creator, mocking and making fun of his archaic word and rule. There's a cost for that. It's the judgment of God. If God should mark sin, know the verse in Psalms, if God should mark sin, who could stand? David wrote that 3,000 years ago. The cost of redemption, the cost of forgiveness, the cost of atonement, what's that cost? Jesus paid the cost. Look at verse 10. The one who follows the beast, the one who proudly was, hang with me, please don't miss this. This is the point of the whole message. Verse 10, the one who follows the beast, the one who proudly wears the mark of the beast, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Now here's the shocking statement. That is the cup that Jesus drank at Calvary and he drank it to the dregs. He drank the cup of God's wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He drank the cup of wrath of God that's detailed in these verses. Don't you dare look at these words and talk about God's lack of love. This is supreme love. God demonstrated his love for us in this, from Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love for us in this. How did he demonstrate his love? That he gave his own son to die for our sins. He sent him to hell. He drank that cup to the dregs. Next week at the table, we, right here, next week, at this time next week, we'll be taking the wine and the bread. We'll be taking the blood of Christ. When John wrote this, when John wrote Revelation 14, when he saw this scene, he had to be thinking of Matthew 26, 27, 20. He had to be thinking of that upper room and John was there. John was sitting right next to him. Look at it. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was essentially saying, I drank the cup of God's wrath. This is a cup you're drinking of God's mercy. We can only drink the cup of God's mercy because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. You're going to drink from one of those two cups. I don't care who you are. I don't care. Everybody in this world is going to drink from one of those two cups. We've all drunk from the cup of rebellion, cup of sin. You're either going to drink the cup of God's mercy and the blood of Christ or you're going to drink one day for all eternity from the cup of God's wrath. I pray that all of us will sing 501 and that it will be a confession from the depth of our heart about our dependence on Jesus.